0: But today, I wanna talk about this question. What does it mean to be human? This is the fundamental question of anthropology. As an anthropologist, I, in my own way, seek to answer this question. My colleagues in my department have very different ways of trying to answer this question, and I think many of you here would have even different ways to try to answer this question. As a biological anthropologist, when we talk about what it means to be human, we're talking about things like this. Having large brains, being habitual bipeds, having reduced sexual dimorphism, differences between males and females are quite minor compared to, for example, a gorilla. Small canines, small teeth overall, gracile crania, uh, lists and things that make us unique. And as Professor Carroll noted, lists of characteristics are really not adequate. But this in one sense is what we do in science. And it's what we're limited to in the fossil record. So we do have these characteristics of how we define human, which is different from saying what it is to be a human. But as I said, these are the limits of the data we have to work with. We also have to ask the question, what does human actually mean? And in the context of human origins, in the context of the evolutionary record of human origins, human could mean many things. And so thinking about, for example, this multifarious tree of different species in our ancestry, I want to focus on three particular points that might be considered human and human origins. So starting at the base of our lineage, the origin of the hominin clade, we know that the origin of the hominin clade seems to have occurred between six and eight million years ago, depending on how you calculate it, perhaps a little earlier than that. And our evidence is, is quite fragmentary. And so I want to I talk briefly about a few organisms that lived between seven and four million years ago. So that would be one sense of what it means to be human, to belong to the clade of hominins and all of these species that are in that clade. We can move later in time and talk about the origin of the genus Homo. And so, we belong to the species Homo sapiens, and within the genus Homo, there are a number of other species. And so, one sense of what it means to be human is to talk about belonging to the genus Homo. And so, this genus originated about two and a half million years ago. Moving much later in time, then, we can talk about the origin of our own species, Homo sapiens. And to the best of our understanding, at least anatomically, that origin is about 300,000 years old. So these are the three points in time that I'd like to talk about. I'm going to focus primarily on the fossil skeletal evidence, and that's because this is my specialty. And in the end, this is the only real evidence we have of the oldest parts of our lineage. But I will talk also about genetic evidence, human origins, and a little about the archaeological evidence. What it tells us about humanity. So, starting with the origin of the hominin clade, as I said, sometimes six to eight million years ago. When we think about the origin of hominins, we have to start with the genetic evidence. And one of the big advances in evolutionary biology came with the genomic revolution, starting in the late 20th century and continuing today. And for the longest time, our understanding of human origins was severely limited by the assumption that the human clade was distinct. From the great ape clade. And that was the notion that humans, or something like human, represented a distinct branch very different from the other great apes, the chimpanzees and bonobos, the gorillas and the oranges. And so this was the assumed evolutionary relationships among those groups, where we have great apes on one hand and a very different human clade on the other. The genetic revolution then showed us that this understanding was not quite right, that instead of being distinct from the other apes, that in fact humans are more closely related to chimpanzees and chimpanzees to humans than chimpanzees are to gorillas. And in fact, the genetic difference between humans and chimpanzees is only about 1.2%. The genetic difference between chimpanzees and gorillas is about 1.6%. And the genetic difference between any one of these and orangutans is about 3.2%. This changed a number of things in terms of the science, including the taxonomy and how we name these different groups, but it highlighted to most that this is a relationship that we really have to consider if we wanna understand the origin of the human clade. What does the common ancestor to a chimpanzee and a human look like? Now, the molecular clock, so if we take all of the genetic data and we calculate using some model of mutation rates, we calculate how old that split should be. That suggests that the split was about six to eight million years ago. And this set of relationships is now universally accepted by scientists. Um, My my supervisor, in fact, was one of the last holdouts, and he has come around to accept the genetic evidence um, that humans and chimps are the closest among the great apes and humans. So that's the genetic evidence suggests that human origins or at least the origin of the hominin clade, goes back between six and 8 million years ago. And to look at the fossil evidence, then you first have to have an appreciation for the complications that we have in studying the fossil record. So if this is a representation of what that fossil record looks like with the human and chimpanzee lineages sharing a common ancestor, those sharing an ancestor with gorillas, et cetera, this is a rough distribution of some human or hominin groups in our lineage. And I haven't put all of them up there because there wouldn't be space. We talk a lot in the fossil record about the lack of fossils. We always need more fossils. Our evidence is actually quite abundant for human origins. And if you go back here to the base of the African ape clade, there's also quite a bit of evidence for the evolution of gorillas and the evolution of chimpanzees consists of about 12 teeth that are about half a million years old. We know nothing about the evolution of chimpanzees, at least anatomically. We have even less evidence about the evidence of gorillas. And so conceptually, if we want to talk about what the common ancestor of chimpanzees looked like, we don't have the information We can't even make assumptions because we know nothing about the evolution of this part of the the split. And so in some sense, trying to understand this origin, this particular origin, is going to be biased by what we understand of human evolution. We can talk about, to some extent, what defines us as humans and what would be at the very base of all of those traits, all of those things we associate with our humanity? Which ones really set us apart at the earliest stages? For decades, people thought it must must be things like large brains, abstract thought. These are really what separate us. But in fact, if you go back to the beginning of our lineage, it's two things. It's walking on two legs and it's having small canines. No other primate walks on two legs like we do. There are bipedal primates. There are primates that that hop around when they're on the ground like a fox. There are bipedally walking primates like gibbons. They they throw their arms around like zombies when they walk because their arms are so long, but they're not habitual bipeds. No other primate practices the kind of bipedalism that has transformed their skeleton in a way that we recognize as hominin. The other trait is these reduced canines. So here you can see this is a hominin fossil compared to a female chimpanzee, quite a bit bigger canine. And this is one of the hallmarks of of the hominin lineage. But in fact, even that's not a useful feature because we know that somewhere down here, there are six or seven other species that have also reduced their canines. Proper apes, not hominins. And so we can't really use canine uh, reduction to define our clade. It's being bipedal. This seems to be the characteristic in which we can identify the earliest hominin. So let me give you a few examples of what those look like. Some of the evidence from the fossil record. This is a species called Sahelanthropus chadensis, known from Chad, it's about 7 million years old. It's got a brain the size of a chimpanzee, so not exceptionally large brain. But there does seem to be some evidence that it's a hominin. And so if we flipped this cranium, up on its end, you would see that the big hole in the back called the frame and magnum, you all know Latin, right? Big hole. It actually is rotated underneath the skull because it attaches to an upright walking organism. And a gorilla would be a little further back. And in a dog, it's much further back, right? So that's a hallmark of being a biped. Frame and magnum rotates underneath the skull. It has a small canine, as I said, something we can't associate with the hominin lineage particularly if it's presumed to be a male. But what we really want is postcranial data, right? We want limb bones because that's where we can see the bipedal status. Sadly, our limb bones are, are quite limited and fragmentary. There's a part of a femur, right? So the thigh bone, that's gonna tell us something, but there's so little of it, it's hard to say much. What does seem to be there suggests the possibility of bipedality. And so when it was published, the discoverers argue that this must be the earliest hominin. Um, there's some recent work that suggests perhaps it's, it's an early African ape rather than a hominin. And, and honestly, we don't have any fossil gorillas and chimps. Wouldn't that be much more exciting? But this is one example. If it is truly a hominin, as many of the features suggest, this would be the earliest member of our lineage that we have evidence. Slightly younger in time is this specimen called Auroran tugenensis. This is from the Tugen Hills in Kenya. It's been dated to about 6 million years old. Arguably, even scrappier material than the last one, but at least we have some leg bones, and those leg bones do suggest that it was a bipedal hominin. And something I like as a scientist: not only did the people who discover it argue that, but independent researchers have also confirmed that this probably was a hominin walking bipedally. But again, this isn't going to tell us much about the origin of humans. One more early example, and this is much more exciting because we have lots and lots of material. This is called ramitus. ramidus. This was found in Aramis, Ethiopia, and it's been dated between 4.4 and 3.9 million years old. One of the great things about this taxon is we have a partial skeleton. And that means not only can we talk about the bumps and grooves on individual bones, but we can talk about proportions of body parts. We can talk about the anatomy as a system not as a series of discrete parts. And so I won't get into all of the details, but many, many bipedal features, plus reduced canines, plus a specialized cranial base that we associate with with humans, all argue that this was truly one of our ancestors. The brain size is quite small. As I said, big brains doesn't happen early in our lineage. And strangely, The anatomy of the hand and the foot don't look like a knuckle walker, right? So it doesn't look like a chimpanzee or a gorilla. It doesn't look like a suspensory. ape. It doesn't look like it was climbing in the trees the way gorillas and chimpanzees do. In fact, they suggest, in some sense, the anatomy of critters I work on. And so this specimen has suggested that our understanding of the common ancestor between chimpanzees and humans was fundamentally flawed, probably because of that lack of evidence. That if this was not in its anatomy looking like a human or a chimpanzee, then that common ancestor must be much more interesting than we thought. Again, I'm, I'm trying to do in a 45 minute talk what I do in a, a semester's worth of teaching. The earliest members of our clade, the very earliest hominins are characterized by bipedal features and reduced canines. Fossil evidence, puts that around 7 million years ago. When we get beyond those basic features, when we get beyond those things that seem to group them into our lineage, there's actually quite a bit of diversity. There's no simple way to organize these into one type of thing, one grade of organism. And so it suggests that there's a lot going on And that our understanding of human origins at the base is probably going to be changing radically as we uncover new evidence. So let me move on to the origin of the genus Homo. And as I said, this was about two and a half million years ago. Lots of other species that I'm not talking about, lots of things going on, evolutionary experiments becoming bipedal in different ways to different degrees, eating different kinds of foods learning to use tools or learning to use stone tools. And if we go back to our list, again, our unsatisfying list, when we think about the origin of the genus Homo, there's four traits, four characteristics that we traditionally have associated with that origin. Having a large brain, having a fully opposable thumb, all primates have opposable thumbs, but ours are really, really opposable. Perhaps this goes along with complex tool use, again, 25, 26 species of primates use tools, but none of them use complex tools like us. And the ability to communicate with complex language, syntactical grammatical language. These are four features associated or thought to be associated with the origin of the genus Homo. But if you look at these features individually, things like complex tool use, we now have evidence that not only species of Homo were using stone tools, but also species of Australopithecus. So that seems to be unrelated then to the origin of our genus. Language is difficult because it doesn't fossilize. We can look at things like brain endocasts. Sometimes we get these spectacular brain endocasts and we can point to different grooves and say, well, this might be Broca's region, maybe that suggested development that it was indicative of language, but it's not strong evidence. And in fact, we now know that the features that we think define the ability to use tools in terms of our opposable thumbs, we also see in earlier hominins like Australopithecus. So either they too were using uh, complex tools with fully opposable thumbs or our evidence is misguided and needs to be rethought. So in the end, we're left with large brains, which seems to be how we define the genus Homo. And this harkens back to a a traditional approach to how we split things up, whether we put them in our own genus or another one. And this this was called, um, in evolutionary terms, this was called crossing the cerebral Rubicon, seems appropriate being in Rome. This is my, my, metaphorical cerebral Rubicon, this is much much nicer to my mind than the actual Rubicon, but the cerebral Rubicon was the idea that to belong to this exclusive club of large brain hominins, you had to have a large brain. And that was something about 1,050 to 1,600 cubic centimeters. And so we're talking about things like Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo antecessor, all of these would meet that criterion. And on the other side of the Rubicon then were these smaller brained Australopiths such as Australopithecus africanus, Paranthropus robustus, etc. Well, this gives us a very nice distinct separation. Here you have on one thing, these early hominins and once they achieve critical mass in their brain, now we can call them members of the genus Homo. Now, of course, the actual positioning of the Rubicon, what you had to cross differed from different specialists but seemed to be between 700 and 800 cubic centimeters. This notion was destroyed when Leakey and Tobias, among others, decided to add new, more primitive species to the genus Homo. And so the discovery at Olduvai Gorge of early stone tools, so early they look more like stone than tools. This discovery of these stone tools in association with small brained yet very gracile hominins, argued to Lewis, et cetera, that these two were species in our genus. And so they added Homo habilis to the genus Homo. And as more and more specimens were discovered in different places, as more variation accumulated, they added a second species, Homo rudolfensis. And so these two species are widely regarded by most researchers as the earliest members of our genus, not because they have large brains, but because they seem to be associated with stone tools. Of course, as I've said, Australopithecus is now associated with stone tools. But I think we should push back on this a little bit. One of the things that happens in paleoanthropology and, and I would argue all of paleontology is that we have these traditions of how we have named things and it becomes very hard to break out of those traditions to question the assumptions of why they were named in the first place. And so as I showed you, seemed to be about brain size, but now we're going to chuck brain size and we're going to go with tool use. But now the tool use doesn't seem to work. And so it leaves us with a very confusing, if, if at all useful, definition of the genus Homo, so this is just showing you a sample of the variation in the taxon. But I want to point to this study by Wooden Collard in 1999, where they actually examined systematically some of the features that we associate with our genus, and they included these early species as long as as well as some later species. And I want to highlight these earlier ones: the A. Here means that they more resemble Australopithecus than the genus Homo. And the H means they resemble the genus Homo. So if you actually look systematically through the skeleton or what we have of the skeletons, what you find is species of early Homo actually look much more like Australopithecus, not like members of our genus. And in fact, if we focus in on brain evolution specifically, again, something that we regard as very important in the evolution of our lineage. If you look at this map of brain evolution, and this is just by volume, you can see that the major change is actually not in these species of early Homo. There there seems to be an uptick there, but actually if you correct for body size, there's not even an uptick there. But the real change is here in this transition from these species of early Homo to Homo erectus. You can plot this through time, so time on this axis, and in this case, we're looking at encephalization. So not just brain volume, adjusting for body size as well. And when you do that, you get the same picture. But it's Homo erectus that seems to be doing something different, not Homo habilis or Homo rudolfensis. And so some have argued, um, although not successfully, but some have argued that perhaps when we think about the origin of our genus, we should be thinking about the species Homo erectus. That Homo erectus in many ways represents the sorts of traits that we would associate with a major change in our ecological niche, a major change in the way that species are operating on their landscape. Homo erectus persisted on the planet for almost 2 million years. And during that time, we see substantial brain expansion. We see in Homo erectus, the first examples of stone tool curation. And so not just banging rocks together to get an immediate stone tool, but actually carrying them, transporting them from one place to the next, using them again and again, carefully keeping them sharp, much more planning and foresight. We see in Homo erectus a modern body size, and for the first time, fully obligate striding bipedalism. The postcranial skeleton of Homo erectus is essentially no different than ours. Homo erectus is the first species, as far as we can tell, that migrated out of Africa, populating both Europe and Asia. There also may be evidence in Homo erectus for something we don't see in the animal kingdom as such, and that's caring for their elderly. A great study by my colleague at Minnesota based on specimens from Domenici in Georgia has shown that the number of elderly individuals at that site was much higher than we would expect, for example, among a chimpanzee population. And if you look at some of these specimens, specimens whose teeth are worn so far down, specimens who are so arthritic, they would not have easily gotten around and survived on their landscape. It does suggest a capacity for human caring that we associate with ourselves. I want to point out... That this desire, I think, certainly among paleoanthropologists, but also, I think, among the public in general, this desire for clear distinctions between evolutionary groups harkens back to a a real platonic essentialism. And I should perhaps, um, in deference to our last talk, distinguish here between a physical essentialism, which is what I'm talking about rather than a metaphysical one. This idea that things don't change, that they have an essence, undergirds our drive to find these clear distinctions between groups. I would argue that today it lingers for a couple of reasons. One is simply the modern emphasis on cladistic methods, the way scientists reconstruct relationships reinforces that. We all want to find the smoking gun that's going to definitively show that this group is different and it evolved in that way and it is related to other things, hopefully important things for our careers. But in fact, that very modern methodology in in biology isn't supported by the same evolutionary theory that we teach. If we truly believe that lineages evolve and split over time in a gradual bridgeable way, as Darwin argued, then we would not ever expect if we had a reasonable fossil record, we would not expect to find clear distinctions. We would expect to find Gradual change. And so, the very fact that I'm up here saying I can't quite tell you where the genus Homo begins is itself evidence that evolution is relating these organisms in ways that we hope someday to understand. So, again, to summarize the origin of the genus Homo, there are very few features that are available in the fossil record that unambiguously separate early members of the genus from other hominin species. It's hard to demarcate where our genus begins and others end, but this is consistent with evolutionary expectations, particularly at this level of phylogenetic resolution. When we talk about one species evolving into another, we expect that evolution to be gradual and not necessarily clear. And I would argue, although I have not yet done so in print, I would argue that Homo erectus exhibits a more obvious departure from earlier hominins and maybe ought to be considered the earliest member of our genus. But again, parrot and wood and collard who did uh, the study much earlier. So let me move on then to the origin of our species, homo sapiens, skeletally at least, I would say that was about 300,000 years ago. So sometime between 200 and 300,000 years, we see the first skeletal evidence of things that look like modern humans. Now you may look at this and you may think, "Oh, that doesn't look very modern. Well, it's 300,000 years old, it's not terribly modern, but it's got certain qualities, certain characteristics that we associate with our humanity. Things like having an orthognathic face, a face that is nose tucked up under the eyes rather than protruding. Things like having a chin, which turns out to be a very important feature of modern humans. The timing of this, what we see in the fossil record is coincident with coalescence times for many of genes in our genome. When we calculate when those genes first originated based on variation in modern groups, calculating back, this 200 to 300,000 year window seems coincident with many of them. But I should say, and we'll show in a minute, that genomic analyses show us that it's not nearly that simple. There's also little in the archeological record to suggest a behavioral revolution anywhere in this time period. In fact, if you look at, particularly in Africa, where we have the best archeological record, if you look at some of the origins and persistence of different traits, things like creating true blades from your stone tools, using grindstones, pigments, so on and so forth, there's no point where, oh, now hominins are doing something different it very much seems to be a gradual accumulation, a cultural ratcheting, if you will. As we get more and more knowledge, we advance and add to our toolkit. I wanna pause for a second and talk a little bit about species and speciation, because when we talk about the origin of our species, we often get to this question of species and speciation, and how do we understand the relationships among these different lineages that on one hand seem very distinct, And on the other hand, seem to be exchanging genes. Most of us have an understanding of species and speciation based on the biological species concept. This is the idea that we can define a species based on groups of interbreeding organisms that produce offspring. Organisms that can't interbreed in that group are in a different species. That's the biological species concept. Most of us learned this sometime in in secondary school or, or even primary school. And this is how most of us understand species to to be defined. I would argue that the biological species concept is a fundamental, fundamental obstacle to the acceptance of evolution. And I get this every time I teach class. Every single semester, a very bright student says to me, if you have to be a new species to evolve, and if species can't interbreed, what does that first individual do, they can't interbreed with anything. And that's because the biological species concept has put us into this essentialist place, trying to define evolutionary and biological processes in discrete chunks. In fact, speciation is not an event in that it has any meaning whatsoever. It's not about one organism or one generation of organisms suddenly being incompatible genetically with the previous one. Speciation is a process. It's a process through which populations become less and less compatible, and over time, may cease to exchange genes. And so if you imagine a population fully exchanging genes among its members, speciation is this process through which, for whatever reason, those genes eventually stop being exchanged. Reasons could be geographic. If you imagine, for example, 4 million years ago, the uplift of Central America, where we have North America and South America, suddenly there's land between them and you've got fish on either side, which were freely exchanging genes. Now they can't. So we can have geographic causes of speciation, but we can have behavioral causes of speciation where organisms simply cease to recognize other members of their population as an organism they can reproduce with for behavioral reasons. We can have mechanical reasons. If you imagine dogs, for example, there are certainly mechanical incompatibilities against some, uh, between some breeds of dogs. But for whatever the reason, speciation is a process, and this process can carry out over hundreds of thousands of years, even millions of years. We know, for example, that baboons and mango bees diverged about three million years ago We also know that they are still capable of hybridizing. No one would look at a baboon and a mangabe, baboon and a mangabe, and suggest that they were the same species. They're perfectly capable, or at least partially capable, of producing viable offspring. And so these stages of incomplete hybridization can persist for long periods of time. And it's in that context that you have to think about the origin of our species. And in fact, if we survey lots of different groups of organisms, and so we've got lots of vertebrates here, but even things like ferns, if you survey these and you look at how many of those species within those groups are genetically incompatible with other members of their group, what you find is only about half of them does this hold up. That our biological species concept, if we want to be pure biological species, only works for about half of the organisms in any one of its group. And so again, this is the context in which we have to think about the origin of our species. 300,000 years ago, a hominin bearing striking resemblance to ourselves, having characteristics that remind us in some sense of ourselves, appears in Africa. Our oldest evidence is here in Morocco. Our best evidence is here in Eastern Africa. And so we have the origin, perhaps, of our, of our species 300,000 years ago. but. This was not a lonely planet. Living in the old world at this time were species of middle Pleistocene Homo. Species were still trying to figure out how they're related in South Africa. In Europe, we have the Neanderthals. In Asia, we have the Denisovans, Homo erectus, Homo floresiensis. We grew up in a world that has a single species of hominin, but that is a very, very recent event in the history of our lineage. And so then if we look at the genetic evidence related to the origin of modern humans, what we find is the same thing we would find with any other species. Our lineage diverged some time ago, this is suggesting perhaps 600,000 years ago, our lineage diverged from other lineages of hominins, but there was still genetic admixture. There was still exchange of genes, We know that somewhere between two and 5%, two and 7%, depending on the population of modern humans have quote, Neanderthal genes, suggesting Neanderthals contributed in some sense to our genetic ancestry. We're less sure about the contribution of this group, the Denisovans, but there does seem to be evidence that they contributed as well. And then there's this ambiguous archaic group that computer modeling suggests must have been there, but we have no evidence of in terms of the paleontological record. And so genetically, the origin of our species is not a simple discrete event. Genetically, early hominins, early homo sapiens seem to have been behaving like other animals. This study by Schaefer et al. last year, um, I'm only gonna say a few things, but nicely summarized at least as of 2021, our our knowledge of this genetic uh, data. So between one and a half and 7% of the modern human genome is unique to ourselves. That seems to be genetically what makes us human. One and a half to 7% of our DNA. Those unique genes seem to be related to neural development and neural function. And so at this point, the origin of our species, it does seem to be all about the brain. Genetic evidence suggests broad Neanderthal modern human admixture, best explained by a single pulse admixture, probably happening here, where modern humans were stuck in the Levant for something like 20 to 40,000 years, Neanderthals were there as well. But in addition, some very population-specific admixture with Neanderthals. And as I said, the evidence for admixture with Denisovans is there, but we know very little about the Denisovan genome. Those of you who aren't familiar with the field, Denisova cave up here uh, yielded two specimens. Is now quite a bit more, but almost all of our genetic data come from one place. So we don't have a good model yet for how much contribution they may have made to our DNA. So that's, that's the genetic evidence. This is the fossil evidence. We have a number of good fossil specimens that represent modern human anatomy. And just, again, for those of you who don't stare at skulls all the time like I do, there's a comparison between a Neanderthal and a modern human. And you can see the modern human, the skull is more rounded, the face is more tucked up underneath. It's less robust, although this is a pretty robust critter, but. Less robust than the Neanderthal. It looks a little bit more like a modern human than the Neanderthal. If we come back to our brain evolution, right, we can see here that Neanderthals, and it's got sapiens there, although that's wrong, and I'll show you in a second, um, seem to represent the endpoint of what you can do expanding your brain. If all you do is take a chimpanzee-like brain, and make it bigger and bigger and bigger, you eventually get to a Neanderthal. The modern human brain is actually smaller. Our brains, on average, are smaller than Neanderthal brains, but reorganized. They're different in quality as well as quantity. If the Neanderthal represents the endpoint of what evolution can do by making brains bigger, anatomically modern humans represent what evolution can do by changing the structure of the brain. We have an expanded olfactory complex and expanded temporal lobes, whereas Neanderthals have a larger visual apparatus and possibly smaller relative brain size, although that's debated. And this seems to be coincident with a change in our growth and development. And so any of you who have kids already know that humans take a long time to grow up, right? Monkeys take about eight years to grow up. Chimpanzees take about 12 years to grow up. Modern humans take about, I mean, we say 18 years, but it's, it's 30. Well, it turns out we can actually assess this in the fossil record. We, we thought when we started doing this work that Australopithecus, would start to be slowing down its growth. But in fact, Australopithecus grows up just like a chimpanzee. And so we looked at Homo erectus. We thought, well, this is, this is where we will see the slowdown. Homo erectus grows up like a chimpanzee. Neanderthals, the largest brain hominins, have a slower growth and development, but not nearly as slow as ours. And so what we see in the fossil record is that even the large brain Neanderthals don't develop as slowly as we do. It's only anatomically modern humans that have this very slow development, probably related to something we don't see in other organisms, and that's childhood. A time in our life where we stop the massive growth, where we redirect our energy, not to making our bodies bigger, but possibly to making our minds more agile. So to summarize, we see modern human skeletal anatomy about 300,000 years ago, but the genetic and the archeological data suggest that this is not a meaningful origin to our species, that our species has a complex origin. Some aspects of our biology, for example, neural organization growth and development are distinct from other hominins, but in the end, it's hard to verify without a more complete fossil record and archeological records. So let me end by coming back to this question, what does it mean to be human? And I've got this tag on there, science and religion and dialogue, and I I have no training in philosophy or theology, so I shouldn't venture here. But I'll say a few words because it's relevant to what I do. It's relevant to the students I teach. Biological anthropology and evolutionary biology give us a generative and rigorous account of the corporeal origins of humans. I've given you just a taste of the evidence. I could put you all to sleep with the amount of evidence we have. The extent to which human nature extends beyond the corporeal, however, demarcates the limit of what scientific methods are capable of addressing. As a scientist, I can neither demand that the supernatural leave its footprints on the natural world for my science to discover, nor can I reasonably declare that the supernatural doesn't exist for lack of those footprints. It's simply beyond the scope of the tools that I have to work with. As Thomas Burnett writing for the American, uh, for the AAAS noted, we should celebrate science for its achievements and remarkable ability to explain a wide variety of phenomena in the natural world. And as a scientist, I celebrate this daily. But to claim that there's nothing knowledgeable outside the scope of science would be similar to a successful fisherman saying that whatever he can't catch in his nets does not exist. And so this struggle, and I'm gonna use quotes here, reconcile faith and reason, which I think is a horrible way to think about it, leads us to places we probably don't want to be. And this is particularly relevant in my field, where when I talk to people whose training is different than mine, They wanna know where in the fossil record can they find God? What gaps do we have that can be only explained by God? And this is a God of the gaps philosophy. You all know this, I suspect. If we start filling our universe with our sciences, and we can do this, and if we only allocate God to those spaces where science doesn't tell us anything, not only are we fundamentally limiting what our God can do, But as science expands to fill those gaps, we've absolutely ruined any concept of what God is or should be. But even among the faithful, this is what I hear frequently. Where are the gaps? I would point instead to things like this. One of of the pinnacles of Western thought by Descartes was this, cogito ergo sum. But to me, this represents how, as a scientist, or a logician, I would think about empirical data, testing, understanding, knowledge, epistemology. And I would contrast that then with what God said to Moses, each giving us a different way to think about the universe, each giving us a different projection of this multidimensional universe, but together representing a rich body of knowledge. And so let me end with the maxims of St. John Henry Newman, recently canonized, who I think summarizes uh, my my point much better than I can. Three maxims, truth cannot be contrary to truth. My scientific truth does not have to be contrary to religious truth, as was more elegantly pointed out in the earlier talk. Maxim two, truth seems contrary to truth, often. And therefore, we must be patient with such appearances and not be hasty to pronounce them to be of a more formidable character. As a scientist, then, I have to be humble, to be content with moving our knowledge forward, even if at the end I can't quite get my truths to line up.